Hi and welcome to this latest episode from 1914 to 1918 war.com. In this episode, uh, we're going to take a break from reading Bruce Benn's father's Bullets and Bullets, and we're going to skip across to an article I've written about Scarpa Flow, uh, Britain's First World War anchorage. I think this one's going to be released in two parts because it's a pretty hefty bit of writing. Um, if you want to see the text of this, uh, make sure you sign up to the Substack. That's 1914-1918.substack.com. There's a building collection of stuff there for free subscribers. And I think next week I've got my first premium article going out uh, for those who want to support the project. Right, uh, let's get on with the show. City of Ships, Scarpa Flow, Britain's First World War Anchorage. The great natural harbour of Scarpa Flow lies in the Orkney archipelago, just eight miles off the northern coast of Scotland. 120 square miles of water, surrounded by a ring of islands, forms a huge natural anchorage. Sheltered from the North Atlantic, it is both deep enough to allow the largest warships to enter, and big enough to accommodate an entire fleet. However, despite these natural advantages, it was not perfect, being exposed to the elements and being physically remote from the rest of Britain. This is the story of Britain's great wartime harbour and its role in the First World War. At the outbreak of the war, the British fleet had been massed, initially for the annual naval fleet review, and then as tensions on the European mainland mounted in case of war. Instead of dispersing the fleet to their peacetime anchorages and duties after the review, Winston Churchill, then Britain's First Lord of the Admiralty, ordered that the fleet remain concentrated as a precaution. Then, when war was declared, the fleet was sent to its wartime bases. For the Grand Fleet, the most powerful part of the Navy, tasked with facing Germany's formidable high seas fleet, their wartime base was to be at Scarpa Flow. On the 30th of July, just before the outbreak of the war, the islands around Scarpa Flow and their inhabitants were placed under military rule by a small detachment of ten soldiers from the army garrison. The telegraph station, which linked the islands to the Admiralty in London, was placed under military control. The Grand Fleet, containing the most powerful ships in the Navy, the Dreadnoughts, would perform two key roles, ensuring Britain's control of the seas. Firstly, they would enforce the blockade of Germany, preventing German commerce with the rest of the ocean-going world, and secondly they would protect the merchant ships bringing food and war materials to Britain and her allies. The concept of blockade was not a new part of Britain's way of waging war. In earlier wars, such as the Napoleonic Wars of the late 1700s and early 1800s, Britain had used her navy to enforce a close blockade, with ships positioned outside enemy harbours to intercept traffic as it tried to enter or leave. The advent of submarines meant that this was now an incredibly dangerous tactic. Blockade ships would simply be too vulnerable, and in the absence of a reliable submarine fleet of its own, Britain was thrust into a policy of distant blockade. 
Even though Britain had little choice in adopting the distant blockade, many saw this as ideal, as Admiral Jackie Fisher said in a letter to King George V. With the great harbour of Scarpa Flow in the north and the narrow straits of Dover in the south, there is no doubt, sir, that we are God's chosen people. As Europe descended into war, the Grand Fleet set sail from Portsmouth and sailed up the eastern coast of Britain, arriving at Scapa Flow on the 31st of July 1914. The fleet was to be based here throughout the war and beyond. Overnight, the small farming communities on the surrounding islands found their populations dwarfed by the arrival of 40,000 sailors on their ships and a rapidly growing supporting caste of land-based servicemen totalling around 12,000 men through much of the war. Within days of the fleet arriving, the Royal Navy and its commander, Admiral John Jellicoe, were struck by a major setback. On the 5th of September 1914, U-21, a German submarine, launched a torpedo at HMS Pathfinder, a scout cruiser-class ship, as she sailed near St Abbs Head, just to the south of Edinburgh. The torpedo struck the ship's magazine and caused a massive explosion. Pathfinder sunk in just a few minutes with the loss of 259 men. Whilst the existence of submarines was known to the Navy, it had been assumed that they were not a massive threat. But now Sir Admiral John Jellicoe, who had been appointed the fleet commander in Sir George Callaghan's place, he was the uh, peacetime commander of the Grand Fleet, uh, John Jellicoe was now confronted by the reality of a new form of warfare for which the British had no real countermeasures. The Germans were ahead in this new way of war, having 28 U-boats with another 24 under construction, and these boats were becoming more capable over time as the technology developed. Worse still, the wartime base at Scarpa Flow, whilst a magnificent natural harbour, was relatively undefended against submarines. The harbour was blessed with a huge open space, but cursed with the presence of multiple entrances, none of which had any protection beyond the difficulty of navigating underwater. Three entrances, the Hoxha, Swither and Hoy channels, provided access for ships to the harbour beyond, with the Hoxha Sound channel potentially being navigable for an audacious submariner. In addition to the navigable channels, a further series of channels presented openings, albeit with a shallower water or more complex navigational challenges. The base was therefore vulnerable to submarines or destroyer flotillas, or indeed anything else capable of delivering a payload against the fleet. Scarpa Flow was well known to the British Navy, being used before the war as a peacetime gunnery range and for holding regattas, it was known that Scarpa Flow would probably be used as a wartime base in the event of hostilities in the European theatre, but little had been done to protect the base from attack. The shift away from using the major, well-developed bases at Plymouth and Portsmouth against a likely French foe to bases on the northeastern coast against Germany meant that development funds were stretched. Not only was the government paying off the loans raised to develop the southern bases, but was still building dreadnought battleships as fast as she could pay for them. This left very little money for developing the naval bases of the northeast. Specifically at Scarpa Flow, the possibility of shore-based artillery to protect the base had been discussed within the Admiralty, 
but more pressing demands on the budget always took precedence and nothing had been done. In fact, it seemed that the Admiralty were content for the base to rely on the strong and unpredictable currents and the complexities of navigation in the area to protect the harbour. One can't help but feel that this was wishful thinking, based upon a British sense of superiority when it came to German seamanship. However, the German Navy was familiar with the seas around Britain, so this can only be seen as a dangerously false sense of security. Upon taking possession of Scarpa Flow, Sir George Callaghan, commanding the Grand Fleet at the outbreak of the war, took immediate steps to conjure up defences from nowhere, disembarking 12-pounder guns from some of his ships to cover the entrances. These stopgap measures must be seen only as a token effort, and crucially, no searchlights were available to protect against night incursions. As the fleet settled into its new home, destroyers and light cruisers were positioned around the entrances to Scarpa Flow, providing a screening defence. Later, when the fleet was in the harbour, ships were deployed to patrol Pentland Firth, the stretch of sea between the Scottish mainland and the Orkney Islands, through which any attacking force was likely to travel. These cobbled-together defences were, quite frankly, inadequate. A night attack by German surface ships or a submarine attack through the opaque Scottish waters were both very real possibilities. The only effective defences would be actual barrier protections that would physically prevent an invading vessel, be it on or under the water. To this end, Churchill insisted on receiving regular reports on the development of the defences. In the meantime, rudimentary measures were put in place, for example, if a submarine alarm was raised, perhaps when a possible submarine periscope was spotted, the expendable collier ships, the uh, coaling ships, would move swiftly to flank the flagship, HMS Iron Duke, creating an improvised anti-torpedo barrier. On the 22nd of September, the German U-boat U-9 achieved a significant success when it sank three British cruisers patrolling off the Dutch coast. The cruiser's role was to spot the German fleet should it decide to raid into the English Channel, but they proved an easy target cruising in straight lines and at a speed of just 10 knots. HMS Abakir was struck by a torpedo and then the Cressy and the Hogue were sunk when they stopped to pick up survivors. 1,459 men lost their lives in this engagement. Later, on the 15th of October... HMS Hawke was sunk off the coast of Aberdeen and Jellicoe decided he needed to do more to protect his fleet from the encroaching submarine menace. The spectre of a German submarine carrying its maximum load of six torpedoes into the anchorage and running amuck amongst the huge capital ships that were the pride of the Royal Navy was writ large in Jellicoe's mind. He was conscious of the huge responsibility placed upon him as overall commander of British naval forces, and he felt intensely vulnerable whenever the fleet was at rest or coaling in the harbour. On several occasions, he was forced to order the fleet to proceed immediately to the safety of the sea when a submarine was reported in the anchorage, often in dangerous weather conditions. Improvements were to be made, but in the meantime the Royal Navy, the most powerful naval force in the world, was forced to rely on the bluff and the appearance that defences were in place. As late as January 1915, 
Jellicoe wrote to Lord Fisher for a sea lord, complaining about the lack of protection. I wonder I can ever sleep at all. Thank goodness the Germans imagine we have proper defences. At least so I imagine. Otherwise there would be no grand fleet left now. Unwilling to rely on bluff, Jellicoe led the grand fleet out into the North Atlantic. Along the top of Scotland, down the Western Isles to the north of Ireland. For the time being, whilst scupper flow was deemed too risky, the fleet was to steam back and forth and shelter in Loch Swilly in County Donegal. However, even here the fleet wasn't safe. The German submarine U-20 observed the fleet's new location, and on the night of the 22nd of October, the SS Berlin, a German mine layer, laid mines near Loch Swilly. On the 27th, HMS Audacious, a super-dreadnought, struck a mine and subsequently sunk when nearby ships, suspecting a submarine had struck the fatal blow and aware of the fate of the Cressy and Hogue, were slow to take Audacious in tow. In November 1914, the Royal Navy began the process of closing off the narrow channels leading from the open sea into Scarpa Flow. Block ships were positioned across the entrances and scuttled to obstruct the waters. Nets were stretched between the block ships, creating a continuous barrier, preventing U-boats from navigating into Scarpa Flow. Across the one and a half mile wide main entrance of Hoxha Sound, a more flexible solution was needed, one that would allow the fleet to sail in and out whilst preventing unfriendly vessels from entering the harbour. Thirteen coastal batteries were positioned to cover the entrance and anti-submarine booms were built to dangle nets that would ensnare any intruding submarines. Within the booms, floating gates were positioned that could be swung open to allow the fleet to pass through. Smaller trawlers operated the gates, always remaining on station regardless of sea conditions. Torpedo nets were strung between the repurposed fishing boats that were strung out in a line across the entrances. Exposed to the sea conditions outside the harbour, these boats had a monotonous job, enlivened only by the weather and the majestic sight of the fleet putting out to sea through the gateways they manned. Finally, the Grand Fleet had a protected resting place, appreciated by one able seaman as being like a mothering hen to us. Once inside those enfolding cliffs, we can eat and clean in comfort. Around the harbour, Shore defences such as searchlights and anti-submarine listening posts were created, each of which had to be manned by naval personnel. For these men, the war became an endurance test of vigilance, watching in the dark or listening to underwater microphones, always waiting for potential intruders into the flow. Initially, facilities were basic and living conditions ashore could be much tougher than for those living on the ships. For example... Until 1915, the signalling station at Flotter was little more than a turf-roofed mud hut that leaked water onto its inhabitants. As well as the ships and shore facilities, other operations were sighted at Scarpa Flow. In 1916, a kite balloon station was established in Houghton, northwest of the main harbour, to provide a similar capability to that provided by the German Zeppelin fleet to the German High Seas Fleet. Essentially a basket strapped under a balloon, these precarious observation platforms could be flown tethered to a cable attached to a truck 
to provide over-the-horizon observation within sight of the uh, Scarpa Flow area. Later, uh, in 1917, the Houghton base was extended to serve seaplanes from the number 306 flying boat, number 430 seaplane, and F-boat seaplane training flights, which carried out anti-submarine patrols over the uh, North Sea. In the early days of air power at sea, before aircraft carriers, aircraft were launched from warship gun turrets by laying a temporary wooden runway along the 12-inch guns and steaming into the wind to provide the necessary airspeed for a very short runway takeoff. This dangerous activity always required the presence of a destroyer or a motor launch nearby, ready to fish the pilot out of the water if the plane failed to launch successfully. Once the aircraft was airborne, it couldn't possibly land back on such a small runway, so once the reconnaissance was completed, the pilot flew to an aerodrome on the mainland, being returned to their mothership by a lighter. This arrangement worked, but the dream was to be able to take off and land from a ship. The first successful deck landing on a ship took place in Scarpa Flow on the 2nd of August 1917, when Squadron Commander E.H. Dunning, DSC, landed his Sopwith Pup on the deck of the experimental aircraft carrier HMS Furious whilst she was moving. Sadly, he was to drown just five days later when his aircraft caught an updraft of wind and was tipped overboard during a series of landings. He was knocked unconscious during the crash and drowned before he could be rescued. Coaling the fleet. On arrival at the harbour, whether for the first time in 1914 or when returning from a patrol, the first task facing a ship was to refuel, ready for immediate departure if circumstances required it. For the coal-fired ships, this meant the arduous task of replenishing the fuel bunkers. For an armoured cruiser like HMS Black Prince, the usual routine was four days on patrol, followed by taking on about 750 tonnes of coal ahead of the next patrol. Bigger ships needed more coal. Larger ships, such as HMS Dreadnought, could carry nearly 3,000 tonnes of coal. All hands, apart from the wireless operators, concerns over their delicate Morse code fingers provided a lucky escape, were ordered into their coaling clothes. In practice, this meant whatever the men viewed as practical. A collier ship would pull alongside, and bags of coal were filled by teams of men transferred across from the main ship. These bags were then piled into nets and hoisted via derricks onto the deck before being ferried to and emptied into the coaling chutes that poured the coal down into the stokeholds below. In the stokeholds, the coal was shoveled into the corners and up to the roof to fill the whole bunker. The miserable, dirty task of coaling was enlivened by singing, the ship's band playing up-tempo tunes and competitions between the ships engaged in coaling. But this was a small consolation as coal dust covered everything and filled the lungs and eyes with irritating particles. Coaling was backbreaking work and left all hands exhausted, caked in grime and probably deeply envious of those who served on newer oil-fired ships. Once the work was done, the ship had to be cleaned with water hosed onto the decks often resulting in water fights and other games and hijinks. Finally, once the ship had been cleaned, 
the men had the chance to clean themselves in the congested bathrooms that weren't meant to handle the entire ship's company at once, before finally heading to the galleys for food. And that point I'll stop, uh, roughly halfway through this double episode on Scarpa Flow City of Ships. Hope you've enjoyed this episode, uh, it's an interesting one to write as uh, one of my great great uncles uh, was on HMS Neptune so he would have been well familiar with Scarpa Flow. The next episode will dig a little into what life was like in Scarpa Flow, some of the action that took place and uh, the end of the war. Finally, get your free subscription for the uh, Substack at 1914-1918.substack.com and on that nagging note, uh, I'll end it for this week. Thanks a lot. Bye.